Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Steve Royce. Uh, Jeff is my dad. He's taking his uh, annual day off, whether he wants to or not. Uh, usually, I'm over at, during this service with the youth, and we're doing our own, our own teaching, so I'm not, I don't get to be over here as often as I used to, but it's great to be here with you this morning. Speaking of youth, before we dive in, because the youth are where, is where my head is at all the time, I'm going to take just a moment to do a quick little advertisement. If you are in this room and you are a parent of someone who's in our youth group or could be attending our youth group on Wednesday night, I want you to do me a favor. Please take out a smart device of your choice. And don't worry, I asked you to. So go ahead and bury your, phone, bury your face in your phone. It's okay. Um, give you a little bit of context. We have been going through the book of Acts on Wednesday nights. Uh, but we stopped a couple weeks ago because the topic of abortion came up. And I asked the youth if this was something that they wanted to take some time to discuss. And almost unanimously, they said, yeah. Uh, because if they aren't already talking about it, they will be. And so we've been taking a couple weeks to understand the, 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 the arguments that get made and some of the things that are said out there and just really to reason through those carefully with each other. But this Wednesday, we're going to be bringing that discussion to a conclusion. And there's an article that came out just within this last week. I would like to use it to, uh, as an example with the youth to walk through because it's not just me saying, hey, here, here's things that get said. Here's actually things being said. Uh, the article, though, is, I'll say, blunt in some ways. So if you take your smartphone, pull out your search engine, and just type in any combination of these words, HuffPost, so there's, there's your, you already know where this is going, and then either cancer or pregnant or maybe the combination of those three words. And on the very first page, I promise you it'll come up, uh, the, the title of the article is, and I quote, I was told I'm pregnant, then I found out it's likely cancer, and I'm actually relieved. It's the title of the article. Here's my ask for you, parents. Uh, as I said, there's some blunt language in this article. I don't, find, I don't think it, there's anything vulgar, or otherwise we wouldn't cover it. But there are a lot of conversations that I am prepared to have with your teens as youth pastor. The birds and the bees is not one of them. That's not my conversation to have. So what I would ask for you to do as parents, please read the article yourself. If there is anything in that article that you feel like you need to cover with your teens before this Wednesday, please have that conversation. That's your conversation to have. And then they will come prepared. If you decide as a parent that that is not a conversation you're willing to have, or if this is too much for them right now, then I would just ask that you uh, keep them home this Wednesday because that's where we're going. I want to honor you as their parents. Those are your conversations to have, but that's where we're going. And my commitment to the youth is that we don't pull punches. There's no question too hard. There's no topic too out there. If, if it's important and it's relevant and they want to cover it, we'll cover it because I believe there are good answers out there for these, these things as tough as they are. So commercial over. Uh, thank you for that. So this morning... This also relates to the youth. Uh, I want to cover with you something that was the topic of our spring youth retreat. And the topic was prayer. And I've condensed a weekend into, into this morning. So we're going we're gonna to move around a little bit. That's usually how I, how I do. It's like, here's the Bible. That's our topic for this morning. But uh, the topic is prayer. And, and specifically, a couple things about prayer. 
I truly believe, and I said this to the teens, I truly believe that if we understood what prayer is, really, if we understood what is actually happening when we pray, we would do it more. I truly believe that. And so part of my goal today is to share with you, theologically speaking, what is prayer? What is happening? What is going on when you and I pray? I hope it will challenge you. I hope it will encourage you to pray more. But then we're going to do something at the end, no spoilers, that we've never done before. Don't get uncomfortable yet. I promise it'll be okay. But for now, uh, let's dive in. So I want you to picture for a second that you are living in some ancient kingdom. It could be Babylon, could be, could be uh, Israel, could be Assyria, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. You are living in an ancient kingdom, and you're you, okay? And you have a problem, a problem that is so important, it's so urgent that the only person who could realistically take care of this problem for you is the king, how do you talk to him? How do you approach the king to share your problem? I think the only reasonable answer is, uh, sorry, you don't. You don't. That's, that's just not a thing. It's not like today where you're like, I want to talk to the president, and you get up in the Secret Service is like, sorry. It's like, no, you don't even make it through the door. And if you do, that's the last thing that you'll remember, right? And I don't want you to turn there because it's just a quick reference, but if we go to the book of Esther, chapter 4, we'll see an example of this. It's not even just about you or me being who we are. We're talking anyone in an ancient kingdom. In Esther 4.11, Esther says, in response to Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except to the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Even the queen wasn't able to just walk into the king's presence in an ancient kingdom. You did not have access, period. And that set a very uh, different standard than what we're used to today. Now, I just want you to, to get in that frame because if it was that difficult to have access to the king in any earthly kingdom in, kingdom in the ancient world, how much more difficult would it be in anyone's mind living back then to have access to God, right? And since we're in Isaiah, we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time in Isaiah just because I can say, hey, Dad, we were in Isaiah. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And we're going to start reading in the very first verse, first six verses of Isaiah. This is a super familiar passage to anyone who uh, has read this before. You may have even just be familiar with it just from someone else uh, talking about it. It says this, Isaiah 6.1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I find it interesting that Isaiah, who happened to be the only person who was trying to pull people back to God during this time in the kingdom of Israel, admits immediately that even he doesn't deserve to be here. There's some, that Isaiah is woefully, uh, woefully inadequate to be in the presence of God. Holiness, complete holiness, is what Isaiah recognizes as the standard to be in God's presence. Anything short of that, doesn't, it doesn't matter. Isaiah is not comparing himself to the king or to anyone else in Israel. He's comparing himself to the standard, which is God. And none of us are able to match that standard. So, from a framework standpoint, I think let's take, we take a step back and first go, okay, being in the presence of God in the first place is a big deal. It should be a big deal. And if we're properly introspective about it, there should be some trepidation about just moseying into the presence of God. Isaiah found himself there and he crumpled, right? Because he realized in that moment, I don't belong here. And how often do you and I even have that, that moment as we prepare ourselves to go into the presence of God? Not often enough, I don't think. I want to look at and spend a little bit of our time this morning going through a prayer in 2 Chronicles as an example of the attitude of prayer, because I think it's such a great illustration. So turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 6, and we're going to be starting in verse 12. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Now for context, this is a prayer of Solomon. Solomon is about to dedicate the new temple, the the temple that David wanted to build, but God said, no, I'll let your son build it. So he built it, and it's done. He's about to dedicate the temple, and it's about to become open for worship and for access to God, as it were. And before he does that, Solomon gets before all the people, and he prays this prayer to dedicate the temple and also to sort of set the tone for all that's about to happen as a result of the worship of of the people of God. I'm just going to read the prayer in its entirety because I want us to, to catch the flow here. Starting in verse 12. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had set it in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. He spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand you have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, 
how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to, your, to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the pleas of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place, and listen from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. If man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. And if your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to them and to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon the land which you have given your people as an inheritance. I'm going to skip down. He talks about famine he talks about sickness and, and all this, again, the same things. If it's a result of the sin of the people and they turn and they repent, forgive them, restore them because of who you are, not because of who they are. We'll skip down to uh, verse uh, 1 of chapter 7. Solomon finishes this. It says, he finishes his prayer and he says, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This prayer is, is pretty long. But in this prayer, I see so many examples of how we ought to pray that I want to just acknowledge as we go through. If you go back and you look in verses 13 and 14, the, the fact that Solomon, the king of the entire nation, chooses to kneel, to, to, to put himself low before God, before he begins to pray, is such an act of humility that who does a king bow before, right? It, it just, even in doing that, he demonstrates that the first step to entering into God's presence in prayer is to humble oneself. Just like Isaiah realized, I don't deserve to be here. The fact that I am here means I better, I better recognize where I am in this relationship. And it's not as an equal. It's not. And so Solomon chooses to humble himself. We skip ahead in verses 19 through 21. One of the things that we see there is his, his emphasis on the idea that I'm the king, but that doesn't mean I'm in control. Whatever I want, ultimately, if it's not what you want, God, ain't going to happen. So your will and what you want to have happen, God, that's ultimately what I want. Because it doesn't make sense to want something God doesn't want. It's not going to happen anyway. 
But Solomon expresses this attitude of deference, holy deferent to, to God's will and what God wants to have happen. In verses 24 and 25, we see that he begins, and he goes on to reiterate it again and again, this desire for repentance and restoration. Solomon knows that he nor the people are going to be perfect. He's under no illusions that, that, is, that, that they aren't going to break their end of the deal with God. But he knows that God is merciful and gracious and loving. And so part of his attitude toward God is to basically acknowledge up front, listen, I know that I'm going to mess up. And it's not so much if I mess up, it's when. And when that happens, if I come to you in humility and deference and an and attitude of repentance, I know that you'll forgive and I'm asking you to do that up front. In verses 29 and 30, we see an attitude of dependence. He says that... Um, Verse 29, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man over all the people in your Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his sorrow, and stretching out his hand toward this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive, and render to each whose heart you know according to all the ways. For you and only you know the hearts and the, uh, of the children of mankind. Only God knows. And we are utterly dependent on God for everything that we have. Every good thing that we have comes from God. And so Solomon acknowledges that anything that we have as a, as a nation, as a people, as an individual, is because you've chosen to give it to us. The very breath that we have is because you've chosen to give it to us. And therefore, acknowledging that we are utterly dependent on you, God, is one step toward humbling ourselves and entering into prayer. Solomon goes on in this prayer to express a desire for God to be glorified and worshipped by all people everywhere. But it starts with us in our heart. Say, God, you deserve to be worshipped, and therefore I'm going to take the time to acknowledge who you are and give you the glory that you deserve. He goes on in verses 34 and 35 to give acknowledgement to God and thanks for any victories that we experience. Solomon basically says, I recognize that any victory that I experience in my life is because God has given it to me both as an individual and corporately. Any good thing that we experience as a church is because God has chosen to bless us with that victory. It's, we, didn't, we didn't like <clears throat> it into happening. God has blessed us as a church and he's continuing to bless us. And he deserves the recognition and the glory for any victory that we experience. Solomon also recognizes later on in verses 36 through 39 that that we are in need as a people of continuing forgiveness and God's mercy. Any victories because we have obeyed come from God. But any failures that we experience, things that, that don't go our way, or just tough things that happen in life, also can result in us, again, needing to run back to God. We are never, we are never far from needing to run back to God and ask for him to strengthen us, to forgive us, and he's merciful and faithful to do it. And lastly, in the first three verses of chapter 7, we see that all the people, not just Solomon, worship God, acknowledging specifically his goodness, his faithfulness, and his love. So, when we recap it, that's a lot of, a lot of attitudes, a lot of 
uh, ways of thinking about God and things to acknowledge about God. So one of the things I would submit to you is that prayer, especially as we see it here, is not even so much about the words that you and I say. Prayer is about essentially a posture, if you will, that we take toward God. And that posture that we take toward God includes things like humility, dependence, deference, worship, acknowledgement of our own sin and shortcoming and, and, and throwing ourselves upon the mercy and the goodness of God, acknowledging that he alone is good, he alone is God, and bringing ourselves into his presence from that place. And I think that Jesus actually echoed this in some ways when he says uh, in Luke chapter 18, he's teaching the disciples uh, and, and he, he says this uh, parable in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. Um, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down from his house justified rather than the other one. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and who humbles himself will be exalted. It wasn't about the content of the prayer. It wasn't about how many words were spoken. It was about the posture, the attitude that the tax collector took toward God. He said very few words compared to the Pharisee, but his heart was right. He was humble. He was dependent. He recognized his sinfulness, and he entered into God's presence in that regard. And that was the attitude that God responded to. So questions for us. We're not even into prayer yet, so I guess this is, we'll call this the prayer pregame. How's your prayer pregame? How often are these the kind of thoughts that we take time to think? Do we get ourselves into this attitude before we begin to pray, before we enter into the presence of God? Or put differently, do you take the time before you begin to pray to stop and realize who it is that you are talking to. I think for many of us, we, we, we don't. We just don't consider who it is that we're about to talk to. This is the creator of the universe, the sustainer of every atom in creation. And we're about to walk into his throne room. We better not walk in like we own the place, Right? The attitude that we should properly take before we enter into God's presence is the same attitude that Solomon demonstrated, the same attitude that Isaiah demonstrated. And I think that for many of us, that's the first step right there, is just taking a beat to stop and get our minds and our hearts in the right frame of mind. And then, in humility and dependence, enter into God's presence. That's where it begins. Prayer begins with the heart. So if we go and we look at the Old Testament, very practically speaking, and this is where I want to talk a little bit about the theology of prayer. If you were in the Old Testament and you wanted to enter into God's presence, you wanted to be in the presence of God, you wanted to have access to God, there were three things that needed to happen. You needed to be somewhere, you needed to talk to someone, and you needed to bring something, right? 
So where did you need to go if you wanted to be in the presence of God or have access to God in the Old Testament? The temple. That's where the presence of God was. Who did you need to talk to? Priest. There was a good chance you weren't one of them. So you needed to talk to a priest because only the priest had access, and only the high priest had access to the innermost part of the temple, and only once per year. And what did you need to bring? A sacrifice. And this is an interesting side note. The blood of the sacrifice, what was that for? And, and this may, I, I don't know if this would surprise most of you, but the, the, the sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice was not to cover the sin of the person who was entering into the temple. And how do we know that? Where was the blood applied? Not to the person, right? If the blood was for the sin of the person entering into that space, the blood would have been applied to the person to, to, to cover them. But instead, the blood is applied basically everywhere else. It's applied to the temple, to the altar, to the space, right? I want you to think in terms of disinfectant, right? God's space is holy. We are not. When we enter into God's space in the Old Testament economy, that space needs to be basically sprayed down with disinfectant or the, the blood of a sacrifice to maintain the holiness of that space, the separateness of that space. It never covered sin. It never took away sin. That was never its purpose. Only the blood of Jesus does that. So, you need to go to where God's presence is. You need to talk to a priest and you need to bring a sacrifice so that you're covered. In one sense, nothing changed with Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, nothing changed in the sense that you still need to go to where God's presence is. You still need access through a priest and you still need to be covered. So in that sense, nothing changed with Jesus. But in another sense, absolutely everything changed with Jesus. And it's not that those three things are now no longer necessary. In fact, it's the opposite. Those three things are still absolutely necessary. That's, that's the way it is. But how those things are implemented has completely changed. So let's look at those. Because this is where things get really, truly interesting, I think. If we look at 2 Chronicles chapter 3, actually, let's not go there for time. Uh, but 2 Chronicles chapter 3, and some of these Old Testament passages we see is the temple is being constructed there's a very important piece of the temple that's put in place right before you get to the innermost holy place where God's presence dwells with the ark. What was it? What was blocking access from the innermost part to everywhere else in the temple? A curtain, a veil, super thick, right? Like very heavy. It was a barrier that was placed between God's presence and the people. So you could approach God's presence but you could never be directly in it except one time a year for the high priest only for one day. That meant that direct access to God was not possible in the Old Testament. It was only mediated access that people were able to have. In Matthew 27, as soon as Jesus dies, what happens in the temple? We read it in Matthew 27, 50 and 51. The veil is torn. It's split from the top to the bottom. That means God did it, right? No human could have done that. This thing was unbelievably heavy. God splits the veil. What is he saying in that moment? Because of Jesus, you now have direct access to the presence of God. Do you realize how crazy that is? 
anyone in the Old Testament prior to that moment, they walk into the, into the direct presence of God, even if it's the high priest, and he, he didn't do something right. He dies. He drops dead. And now, because of Jesus, there it is. It's just there. Direct, immediate access to God. That's the theology of prayer. But I want us to know that this isn't, I don't want you to just have this as head knowledge because in terms of application, this is amazing. There's no other word for it. For every single one of us, if you are a Christian and you have this, here's the the way that this breaks down practically. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Paul writes about this. trying to explain to the Ephesian Christians just what it is that they have. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Paul says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Skip with me over to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6, two verses, 19 and 20. The writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews six nineteen. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Where has Jesus gone? The inner place behind what? The curtain. What curtain? What curtain are we talking about? Well, we know because what did Jesus become when he entered behind the curtain? The high priest. There's only one curtain that the high priest was was the one. So, right, we're thinking of that curtain. That is the curtain he's referring to. Two more references here quickly. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Revelation 1, 5 and 6. John picks up on this thought of Jesus going behind the curtain and becoming a high priest. And he goes even further and he says in verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, has made us a kingdom. A kingdom of what? Priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And lastly, one more reference here. Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 19, we'll start in 19. Hebrews 10, 19. The writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I read all those together because I want us to get the full picture. In the Old Testament, what did you need to be in to have access to God? You needed to be where the presence of God was in the temple. 
You needed a priest, someone with access to the, to the presence of God. And you needed atonement to make yourself fit to enter into holy and sacred space. This is part of where I think, this is where pregame comes in again. Do we realize what's happening when we pray? Do we realize that all those things are still true, except you don't need to go to the temple to be in God's presence, because through Jesus, God's presence is where? In you. What does Paul say? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's not just talking figuratively. The presence of God is in every believer. So we still need to go to where the presence of God is, except the presence of God is immediate and direct with each and every one of us. We still need a priest. We need access through someone who can go there, except Jesus has become a high priest. And then what has that made us? If you're a believer, we are a kingdom of priests. Do you realize that you are a priest, according to the writer of Hebrews? If you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you are a follower of Jesus. You have been made a priest. And that gives you access into God's presence. No longer do we need to go through a mediary. Jesus is our mediary. And he has given us direct access. Basically, we have the hall pass from Jesus to go directly into the presence of God. And then lastly, we still need atonement. We need a, a way to make ourselves fit to go into that space. Except the writer of Hebrews says... In chapter 10, that anyone who's in Jesus has been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. There it is. The blood has been applied where? Not to the space, to us. And it persists. It never needs, it never needs reapplied. It never needs re-upped. So, same three rules apply. Except every one of those things is fulfilled in you and me. We have the presence of God. We have access to God through the priesthood. And we have forever been, made, uh, been given atonement. Do you realize how crazy that is to someone who grew up in the Old Testament economy? God is out there, and I can never have immediate direct access. But you and I can have that access every moment that we choose to have it. It's unreal. And that might be why sometimes we take for granted what we have. This would be, this would be death to someone who tried to do this before Jesus. And instead, it's life to you and me. It's a complete inversion of the whole, the whole thing. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. Before we get into the, the, the thing that I mentioned earlier that I want to I do with you all, um, for those of us old enough to remember Mother Teresa, which is none of my teens, by the way, uh, I remember a long time ago, there was an interview, I think a 60 Minutes, that she did with Dan Rather. There's another... If you're old enough to remember Dan Rather, you're probably old enough to remember your mother Teresa. And he asked her because she, you know, about prayer. And he said, uh, so when you pray, uh, what do you say? And, and she said, I don't say anything. I just listen. And you could, like, he was, like, flummoxed by that. He was like, that was not the answer. I was like, stop being cute, Mother Teresa. So he's like, so he reformulated the question to try and, okay, fine. So when you pray to God, what does God say? You know what she said? Nothing. He just listens. And he did not know what to do with that, right? <laughs> Interview over, right? And the reason I bring that up is because part of what I think that, that can be a huge impact on our prayer lives is that we spend so much time in our prayers talking to God, telling God what's on our hearts, what's on our minds. 
we fill our prayer time with words. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But if prayer is a conversation, and we're the ones doing all the talking, when was the last time you took time in prayer not to speak, but to listen? To just listen. To just be and to just be quietly and to allow the Spirit of God to say something to you. That's a novel concept for a lot of us. Maybe not for, for everyone, but it's an aspect of prayer that I don't think we focus on as much. Jesus talked about how uh, when, when, we, when we pray, don't focus on saying the right words or saying the, the words enough times because that's how pagan people pray, right? It's not about the right formula or the magic words. In fact, that idea has well, has, is more at home with witchcraft than it is with Christianity, right? That if I say the right words in the right order enough times, things will happen. That's pagan. That is a, not a relationship. That's a put the quarter in and turn the machine. That's not what prayer is. And part of us recognizing that and applying that idea is in not only taking time to speak to God, but in taking time to listen to God. I want to clear one thing up before we... We, we do this because I would like to spend some time listening this morning. But I know that if this is not something that you've done a lot, that you may have some reservations. And I want to just be upfront. This may appear or feel to some of you to be very similar to meditation or some Eastern things of like, we're just going to sit and be quiet and, and empty our minds. That is not what is happening. And to be clear, the reason that I could say that with such confidence is because the intent of those things, if you look and you study Eastern meditation and yoga and all those other things, the intent of those things is something in that worldview called moksha. It means union. The idea of Eastern meditation and Eastern thought is that you will put out of your mind all the things that are going on in your life, all the day-to-day -day stuff, all your problems, all the issues that you're facing, long enough that you will come into union with the universe and you will realize that you are God. That is the point. Wholly opposite of that, the point of prayer, meditative prayer, is to put out all of everything that's going on in your life and all the distractions and all the things you have gone long enough to realize that you are not God and to sit at the feet of the one who is and to just receive from him, okay? Prayer in this way is about orienting your spirit toward God's spirit, humbly, dependently, and just asking him to speak. And so, with the, the few minutes that we have left, I've asked Nicole and the worship team to do something we've never done before, to say, um, let's not do a song at the end. So I wanted to have time to do this. And I'll just say before we do this, that we're going to end... Uh, I'll wrap us up at the end, but for those of you who may want to just continue, I would just ask that for when we're done, uh, you'll, you're free to be dismissed. You can leave, but uh, let's just do so respectfully and, and quietly so that anyone who would like to continue may, um, because there, there will be some time to do that. So here's what I'll ask. If you happen to be sitting in a pretty crowded row, um, would you consider spreading out and moving to a seat or a space where you're not immediately touching someone right next to you? 
I, I want you to get comfortable and in your own like sort of bubble. Go ahead, you can move, it's okay. Um, now, if we start here sudden like mass snoring, something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> so don't get too comfortable. The idea is that you get comfortable enough that you are not distracted. That's it. That's all I'm asking, okay? If you're in a place where you're comfortable enough and you're not distracted, I'll ask us all to please close our eyes. As we are preparing to come into God's presence and to hear from him, to ask him to speak to us, I would just ask each and every one of us to take time to get settled, to get comfortable, and as Solomon did, to just take time and begin to orient your heart to really consider who it is that you are about to speak to. The God of the universe has given you immediate and direct access to him, to his throne room. This is not something to be taken lightly. This is not something to be entered into flippantly. And so I want us to take a moment in our own way to humble ourselves, to express to God our need for him, our dependence on him, our recognition of who he is and who we are in relationship to him. As we prepare our hearts, some of us are visual, I am. If it's helpful to you, the presence of God is immediate within all of us, if you're a believer. But if it's helpful to imagine the presence of God in us, around us, in the Old Testament and throughout Scripture, God's presence is described as smoke, as a cloud, as a storm, or even in Isaiah, as God's presence of just being in the immediate presence of a king seated on a throne. And that king and that throne are impossibly big. If it helps you to visualize yourself there in God's presence, because that is where we're entering when we pray, you can do that. Just allow yourself to take in where you are, who you are in front of, and to be properly humbled by that. Father, you are worthy of worship. You are worthy of all. It is the right and obvious thing for us to recognize your greatness and your goodness and who you are and to worship you. So take time right now to worship the feet of God.
God, you are great. And this is a great gift that you have given us to be here in your presence. Before we bring our things to you, before we tell you what's on our mind, we just want to take time to sit and to listen. So right now I would invite you to just ask God to speak to you. If there is something that he needs to tell you or wants to tell you, it doesn't have to be audible. It doesn't have to be words or even a phrase. It could be a feeling. It could be directing your thoughts to a particular direction. But to invite God and give him space and time to actually speak. So I would invite you to invite God to speak and to just spend a couple moments just listening. What does he have to say to you this morning? God, we're so thankful. You have given us such a great gift of giving us this kind of access to you. Unprecedented. That we can enter into your presence at any moment, any time. While at times it's important to express our hearts to you, the word talks about doing that. It's also important to take time to listen. I pray for those of us here who've maybe never taken the time to pray this way, that it would become one of the ways that we engage you. One of the tools that we use to reorient ourselves and during the day and to bring ourselves into your presence and to just enjoy your presence. Just being with you. Thank you for this day, this great gift that we can be here together and enjoy you. I thank you once again just for who you are, your goodness, your greatness, your mercy, your kindness, and your love. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray.